And Lord, that we might become a people that are heavy with you and thus free. And Lord, this passage we're going to read so breathtaking in its uh, depth, Lord, would become real to us, would become a revelation. And I pray, Lord, that which you've deposited in my own heart, Lord, will be transmitted in these moments uh, by the Holy Spirit to every single one who hears my voice in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's go to John chapter 17. John 17. Now, this is the end of a short three-week series, began by week one, uh, doing the, the, the final prayer of Jesus, his deathbed prayer, that which is most on his heart prior to going to the Father. Thus, these words have great import, great weight, are meant to be meditated on, reflected on, prayed through by us. They're meant to be our prayers and our passions, and that's why I'm called this whole series, Praying and Living Like Jesus. And so it begins in... in if you remember the first five verses, and we talked about uh, completing your work, where Jesus says, I have finished the work that you've given me to do. And he had a great sense of his unique destiny and place in history. And we talked about the importance for each one of us to know who we are in God, what he's asked us to do, and our short time on earth. If you remember, I quoted this Hasidic rabbi, who I think summed it up well, who said, uh, before his death, when I get to heaven, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? Instead, they will ask, why were you not yourself? Why did you not become what only you could become? And then, that was week one, fulfilling your unique peace in history. Week two was last week, and John 17, verse 15, kind of summed it up, where Jesus says, I pray that you believers, the church, would be deeply in the world, but not of the world, and protect you and protect us from the evil one. And uh, it kind of can be illustrated by that little story of the frog in the kettle. Some of you know? How many know the illustration, frog in the kettle? A little famous about the scientist. I wanted to find out at what point would a frog jump out of a boiling pot of water. And so uh, he put the frog in the water, and it was room temperature, then he heated it up, and the frog didn't jump out at 80 degrees. Job, the frog stayed in when it was 90 degrees. The frog stayed in at 100 degrees, uh, hotter and hotter. And the frog never jumped out, but he boiled to death. And the question is, why didn't the frog jump out of the kettle? Because if you throw the frog in a boiling kettle, he would just popped in and popped right out. And the reason is because as it grew hotter slowly, the frog grew accustomed to it. And so by adjusting to the ever-increasing heat in the water, he slowly boiled himself to death. Now the reason it illustrates so beautifully is because most of us are unaware of how we grow accustomed to the world around us and the temperature of the world around us until spiritually we die. And so say, for example, things that would have shocked us on TV or in movies or in songs 10 years ago, Five years ago, now, we don't even blink an eye. Because slowly over time, we've grown accustomed to it. I mean, folks who are horrified at the fact of smoking a cigarette will do damage to their body because of what they know, have no problem abusing their body sexually and immorally with another person and being naked. Why? Because of the culture we live in. And so in many subtle ways, we, like the frog, end up being in the world and seduced by the world 
as a church, and that was last week. Now this week, uh, this passage in verses 20, 20 to 26 is one of the reasons I became a pastor and devoted my life to the church because it brings out the passion of Jesus, yes, for the world, but the way that the world's going to be transformed is through a people of God gathered together in something called the church. And because Jesus is fully aware that the world is full of division. So before I, I, I reread this passage, I want to just remind you of what the world is like. It's full of hatred. It's full of suspicion on all levels. We can think of nation to nation, whether it's Palestinian Arab to Israeli Jew, whether it's Korean and Chinese towards the Japanese, whether it's Puerto Rican or Caribbean Hispanics versus South American Hispanics, whether it's Ecuadorians and Peruvians, whether it's Serbs and Bosnians and Kosovars, or whether it's Iraqis and Iranians, Muslims, uh, whether it's the couple tribes in, in Rwanda, the, what do they call, the Hutu and the Tutsi minorities, how they hate each other. And, but all throughout the world, there's this issue of who do I trust? And even within nations and within cultures and within races, there's uh, all kinds of prejudices and uh, suspicions. And if you look at history, all of recorded human history is one of racial, cultural tensions and prejudices and hatreds and divisions. It's never been any different in the history of the world. And so in the Roman Empire, in the days of Jesus was marked by sharp racism and prejudices and hatreds and suspicions across Samaritans and Jews and Gentiles. And then you can look at even as is church to church. Well, Pentecostals don't like Baptists, don't like Roman Catholics, don't like AME, don't like... You go right down the line. And then you've got, even within the church, you've got, well, the people with gifts of evangelism don't like people with gifts of prophecy, don't like people with gifts of teaching, don't like people with gifts of hospitality and, and mercy. And sometimes people choose churches because churches tend to even gather around certain giftings. And so we want to be a church that's got my gifting, at least a lot of it. And... People end up dividing over gifts. And then even in, in jobs and, and uh, one union versus management. And then you've got, you know, one uh, carpentry shop against another carpentry shop. And, and um, divisions even of, not just colors of skins and cultures, but even of age groups. I mean, youth, for example, and children against those who are adults. And then those who are middle-aged adults over and against those who are senior citizens and senior citizens over and against children. And you've got divisions all along generational lines as well that divide us and cut us in pieces. And um, I, I can go on and, and on, but I have a neighbor who was a pro-Serb during this recent conflict in Kosovo. And um, he was, she was from Cip uh, Cyprus, a good friend of mine. And he, every night he'd watch the news and, and he would give me, you know, he'd come over and talk to me about Milosevic and why he was so pro-Serb. And he says, you don't understand, Pete, uh, in the 1300s, when Turkey invaded Kosovo and robbed our land, we will never forget. And we want it back. And I'm like, it's 650 years ago, you know? And he goes, it doesn't matter. I mean, the hatred towards the United States and NATO and the hatred for the Kosovo, I mean, it was stunning to me. It was a very nice, calm, peaceful contractor. But we started talking about this issue. I mean, flames of fire and murder in his eyes. And he goes, we don't forget. And so we've got wounds that are unhealed between nations, 
cultures. I mean, this country alone. Then we've got uh, and families and generations and churches. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I mean, listen, 11 a.m. in the United States is still the most segregated hour in America. Now, as we read this passage, I know we haven't gotten to it yet. I'm preparing you. Because this is the prayer of Jesus. And if I don't prepare you for this, you're going to read it and just go, voom. Because when Jesus prays this prayer, he really believes it. All right, I mean, he really believes this is possible. In fact, he's going to make it happen. And he's going to pray for unity. Now, the Bible calls Satan the devil, one of the names for the devil. And that word devil means in, in uh, diabolos, in Greek means splitter. The devil's about lying and splitting you from God, cutting you from God and splitting you in relationships. That's, he's the author of that. Now, here you see the passion of Jesus praying for oneness and, and unity. Now, if you're saying, ah, never happened, ridiculous, I've been hurt by the church, I've been beat up, well, you gotta understand that when that, that that's called unbelief. But Jesus is in a place of faith as he prays this. And if you look at the church and say, ah, oh, people are so messed up, and look at these people, Pete, and I believe it, it wasn't for all these people. They're so ordinary. That's what happened when Jesus went to his hometown and began to do miracles. They were offended because he was so ordinary. Oh, isn't this a carpenter's son? They were offended by how ordinary he was. They didn't believe he'd do anything. And it says because of their unbelief, Jesus did few miracles there. Well, some of you look at the church and look at the people who call themselves Christians and you're offended by how ordinary everybody is. You know, they're just like you. Ordinary. Well, Jesus is praying this prayer in front of the 11 disciples. He's got Peter cutting off ears, jumping out of boats. He's got doubting Thomas. He's got Simon the Zealot, who's a terrorist, ready to bomb Jerusalem. He's got Matthew, ruthless, who's been ripping off people most of his life. He's got Philip, who has no faith to believe for the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, he's got a mess of these 11 guys. And they're very ordinary. But he prays his prayer because he really believes it. He believes the power of God is so great that it's able to take ordinary individuals like you and me and form them into a body, into a community, into a church that's a taste of heaven of such power that the world believes in Jesus. Now some of you are saying, <laughs> I've been around church long enough to know that ain't going to happen in my lifetime. Well, you've got to hear this. Jesus is praying this prayer, and he believes it. And if he's your Lord, and he's your rabbi who's your Shemekah rabbi, you say, Lord, help me to take on your heart and your passion. Now, let's read this passage. I want you to hear this final prayer of Jesus before he dies. I mean, what, what significance here? One final thing. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he didn't go to Wall Street. He didn't go to the World Trade Center. He didn't go to the mayor's office. He didn't go to the political establishment. He went to the temple. Because he knew the future of the city was wrapped up in the people of God. When Jesus prays here at the end, he is praying for us. Because he knows that there's only one salt of the earth. There's only one light of the world. It's not the state. It's not the political system. 
It is the people of God. You have to hear that. And so this is his dying breath of a prayer for the church. Let's read it. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Underline that phrase. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity. Underline that phrase. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. Underline this final phrase, this final prayer, in order that the love you have for me may be in them. Underline that. The love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Amen. All right. Put the overhead up. I want to talk to you first about the vision. There's a vision here you've got to see and feel and get a revelation for. And then we're going to talk about how do you get there. Because when I, I've been through, um, yeah, go down. The vision of Jesus, very simply, is called mature oneness. It comes from verse 23 where he says, May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you've sent me. The word there, may they be brought to complete unity is, may they mature in their oneness. Now, we're not talking about a cult where everyone's the same, dressing the same, looking the same, acting the same. We're not talking about a, an authoritarian, dictatorial type of authority structure. Everyone's one. There's an immature oneness, and I've been a part of that. Maybe some of you have too. That's not what Jesus is praying here, because that'll never make the world thirsty for God. He's talking about believers who, now he compares it in verse uh, 21, that they may be, just as you are in me and I am in you, they may be one. Now, in other words, the Father and the Son are distinct. And that's the model of our unity. They're separate persons but one God. And he's saying in the same way, they're to be separate, but one in heart, one in purpose, one in spirit, and one in love. And he says, Father, I pray they would be self-sacrificing, full of joy. But there's, there's to be such a genuine love between believers in the church, separate but together, that's so unworldly, that's so heavenly, that people look at the church and say, what a safe place, what an extraordinary place. How mature is their oneness. I want, that's God. Jesus is alive. The gospel's true. In other words, a people that have been healed of their past hurts from their families and cultures, 
or past bad church experiences and other stuff experiences, but, but get delivered, healed, free, and love each other with a mature oneness that the world is thirsty. I mean, I mean, maturing in this, I mean, hospitality, friendships with people you never would have been friends before. I mean, a people where we appreciate not just inside the body, but outside the body, different streams of Christianity from all over the world, people very different than us, churches very different than us, but we appreciate how God moves in different ways and in, in different times in history, and we're able to appreciate that, that this is the, that's our brethren, and we, we love that, and we love you, and instead of downing them because they're not like us, and criticizing them, and, and, and being able to grow in forgiving people, and and, and learning to do that in a better way within our own midst and resolve conflicts. And in other words, to be a place where even a slave, like in the days of Paul, Onesiphorus, in the book of Philemon, he became a bishop. Imagine, a slave became a bishop in the church, the leader of the whole shebang in Ephesus. That a place where, where that kind of extraordinary things can happen. And that, that's, that's the vision of Jesus, and, and it's... it's it's a taste of heaven. Now, some of you are saying, I mean, could you, I mean, you know what most people think about church? They look at church and say, what a nuthouse. They say, you know what that church does? It reinforces pathology. There's nothing mature about their oneness. And you know what happens? They run. Because there's as much conflict often in churches than there is outside. And it's sometimes even worse because you got God wrapped up in it. But Jesus is here praying that that would not be the case. I mean, he's, he, he's talking about a people who have surrendered to the common good. In other words, you know, America is called this, we're a country of radical individualism. Uh, and it's, you know, the United States is unique in the world. I mean, just a, this, this, this radical, me, me, individualism. And the common good, forget about it. So we have these, what's called in sociology, these overdeveloped egos. And that's why community is so difficult in America. That's why the whole megachurch phenomenon is so big, because people love the idea of a big church. I, as long as I don't have to be involved in the community, I love to go for a show, and it's a consumer Christianity where I take and, uh, rather than give. But the Bible says the spirit is given for the common good. And that's why if a person's not laboring for the common good, you know it's not the spirit. Because the spirit's given for the common good, not simply the individual good. And so what U.S. Christianity is, hey, you know what U.S. Christianity is? Me and Jesus. Me and my walk with God. What's going to connect me? What's going to give me meaning? And so what happens, we, we, we join a church, we get involved in community, and it's like another luxury that I can use and uh, another product. This is going to be the family I never had. What happens is like we do in marriage, you get involved and you get disillusioned. Marriage goes through three stages. Disillusionment. I'm sorry, first is romance. Oh, it's going to be glorious. Then disillusionment. That's when people usually get divorced. And then if they get through that, they move into mature love. Well, it's like that with body life. You get involved in the church. Oh, community. And oh, disillusionment sets in. And, we, and there are, friends, so many believers, especially in America, that have quit in their hearts believing the church will ever be the salt of the earth, will ever be the light of the world, and said, I'm going to walk out my walk with God despite these people. And, a, and this prayer of Jesus, flush it. It doesn't work. It's a place of pain. But in other words, you can divide people in two categories, givers and takers. Some folks approach all of life 
Give me, take, 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 take. They sit in the corner, let life come to me, say hello to me, take care of me, love me, love me. Versus positively, I want to build something. I want to build my place of employment. I want to build a church. I want to build people. I want to give. You know, JFK in his, John F. Kennedy in his inauguration speech in 1961, he says it beautifully. I love it. He says, you know, ask not what you can do for your country. But, no, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, that famous quote. It's like this. Ask not what the body of Christ can do for you. Ask what you can do for the body of Christ. And it's a whole giving. But Jesus prays and believes that God's able to set a people free that long for that like he does. That have a passion for that. And, and a people who have surrendered and are letting go. You know, there's a book I saw recently called The American Society as a Culture of Complaint. In other words, we live in a society, the author said, where people perceive themselves to be entitled to have all of their desires fulfilled. And when all of their desires are not fulfilled, they perceive themselves as a victim. And so they end up complaining and resentful. And their minds and hearts are filled with bitterness. And, and, and so uh, I'm people are disappointed and complaining about their spouse, about their family, about their work, about their church, about everything. Because it's not meeting all of their needs. And, and America is a, a, a place of complaint. I like one, one monk said it well. He said, either you're in a place of gratitude or you're in a place of resentment. He said, there is no other place to be. Those are the two alternatives of how you approach your whole life. Gratitude or resentment. His author's argument was, Americans are complaining constantly because they feel I'm entitled to everything. John Cheever, some of you know he's an author, wrote this, that, that the main emotion of the average American, with all the advantages to them, is disappointment. Everybody's disappointed. They feel they're entitled to so much more. Now, how do I live this out? How, does this, how can there ever be mature oneness that we be this people that Jesus is praying for here? That they, they, people, church, the world, the godless, cynical world looks at us and says, Ah! Ah! What a place! God's alive! The gospel's true! To change those people like that. And what a safe, mature place. That's a safe, mature place. I want to be there. How's it going to happen? I'm going to give you three things, all right? Two are in the text. One is understood in the text, all right? Let's go down. Number two, which is, you know, how do we get there? And the way to the vision, I'm going to call it. Because how do we get to the vision? Because this can be very ethereal. Now, the first, I'm going to take out of verse 23, where he says, I and them and you and me, May they be brought to complete unity. Or again, may they mature in oneness. Now, the, that's the Greek translation. Okay? May they mature in their oneness. In other words, it's understood that we should be maturing and growing in our oneness with time. In our ability to love well. To build body and community. That's his prayer. Now, go down to number one. In other words, that means, firstly that we're growing in our skills and our knowledge. I'm talking very practical here. You know, for example, I'm learning, and part of my discipleship, I'm learning how to respect people. I'm growing in that. I'm learning how do I hold on to myself while holding on to you? How do I, you know, it's not just, oh, other people, oh, other people, yeah, let me just take care of them, make sure they're happy and everybody's satisfied. 
but I'm going to be me at the same time. I'm going to be willing to incarnate. So, for example, there's a conflict. Let's say Joel's mad at me. He's angry. He's disappointed at me. Now, how do I build community? What do I do? Well, do I just say, well, well whatever you want to be happy, you will cover over this thing. No, no, no. Maturing in one is I need the skills to be able to say, okay, I need to separate myself, and I'm me and a separate individual, but how do I, I got to enter his world on why he's angry and disappointed. Walk in his shoes. Feel what he's feeling, and yet at the same time, hold on to myself as a separate individual because it may not be all my responsibility. But I'm growing and building community to walk that out. Holding on to me and yet entering into his life. What some of us do is it's so messy, we just hold on to us. We don't enter into anybody's world. Others of us enter people's world so much that we lose ourselves and we end up becoming bitter, angry people. The point is, Jesus is talking about the way to the vision is we're growing up. We're learning how to be one and walking this thing out. It's complicated. You know, we're learning how to forgive. What's forgiveness? What does that look like? You know, we used to think we understood forgiveness, right? And you find, I don't know anything about forgiveness. It's, it's one of the most difficult things to do in life. How do I walk that out? You know, how do I deal with anger? When I'm angry at somebody, well, I stuff it. Mm, I know, you stuff it. Then you explode all over somebody else, and that really builds community. Now, you wreck it. You're immature. In fact, the source of that is the devil himself. And part of growing up is maturing in skills and knowledge of how do I deal with my anger. I don't stuff it, nor do I dump it and inflict it over people. How do I deal with conflicts? I grow in that skills. I, I know knowledge. I got to know myself. I got to know my story and what, what touches a hot button for me. That I want to strangle her or strangle him in a small group meeting. Why is that? What is it about me? What's about my story and my personality and how God built me as I function as a separate person, like the Father separate, and the Son separate, and the Spirit separate, one God, three persons? I'm different than all of you, and you're different than everybody else, but yet we're called to walk together in this thing. I mean, we can't do this. You know, those of us who are married here, you know how difficult this is to do with marriage. And you say, how am I going to do it with strangers? Different cultures, different ages, different... Oh, God. Yes! We'll get to how, the actual power behind it in a minute. But friends, we're talking about serious discipleship here. Jesus is your Shemika rabbi, you're following him. And this just takes equipping, growth. I mean, not the triangle. I'm mad at Lenny. So I tell Lena. So I don't want to tell Lenny, he might not receive it. He's probably not mature enough to receive my anger, even though it's all his fault. So I tell Lena what a crumb he is. I've now got a triangle. Now, Lena thinks he's a crumb, too, which means I'm probably right anyway. And then Lena goes, tells Julie over here what a crumb Lenny is. We all agree now he's a crumb. But I've got to grow in skills and maturity. Say, that is not maturing in oneness. That is not the prayer of Jesus. But I don't have the skills because my family of origin and most of our families didn't teach us to love well. And the church is to be a place where there are mothers and fathers in the faith and we're growing up ourselves and communities. We're a place where we're helping each other mature in oneness. Verse 23, that's the passion of Jesus. And that's the only way the world will ever be thirsty. So I'm not trying to fix people. How do I sort that? How do I, I, I want to fix everybody. Any of you like this? You want to say, I want to just change your life or kill you or, the, you know, and... Well, but how do I in the same, have a passion to see them change and how do I love them well when they don't want to change? These are tough issues. 
takes skill, takes self-knowledge. It's interesting how many people despise and hate the church that are in the church. I don't know if you're aware, we tend to hate the things we love. That's why in our own family sometimes, our spouses, our parents, children, the ones closest to us, we can cross a line and begin to despise them. But the place where you learn to love is always a place where it's hard to love. In other words, I learn to love in situations that demand that I love. You don't learn to love in situations that are easy to love. That's not where you're learning to love. You're going to learn to love in situations that are demanding to love. Hello? That's why, friends, it takes skill and knowledge to get to that vision. And, but the world is to marvel at us. Now, but that's not enough, because you can get skills and you can get knowledge, but it's not enough. Which brings me to point two, and then point three. But number two, you need A, but B is, goes down, also found in verse 21, is you need to live supernaturally in the vine. And I'm taking the vine image because we've been on it for the last few weeks. But look at verse 21. Very important prayer in there by Jesus. He says in the middle of the verse, May they also be in us that the world may believe that you've sent me. He knows the world will never believe, they'll never mature in oneness unless they are in us. Very mystical term. May they be in us. That's the words used for being in the vine. It's the same Greek phrase, the same thought. In other words, that we're so dependent, we're so identified with God and this vine that life and fruitfulness is flowing through us. You remember? The vine goes into the ground and it picks up nutrients and water and it pumps them through the vine into the branches. And Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. We're to be connected, abiding, remaining in Him. And so His life, the life of God, is to be pumping through our bodies. And He says, unless you abide, remain connected to Me, you'll bear no fruit. There'll be no life. And He's absolute. There is nobody that bears fruit unless you abide in the vine and remain in the vine. And if you remember, it, it's not just influencing our nature, but He enters our nature. Him in us, us in Him. That's the phrase used here. That it's the very life of God of the universe in us, and us in the life of God. And, and uh, it's, it's supernaturally fueled power. And it's a whole new way of doing life, remember? And so I ask myself, what's keeping me cut off from the vine, from not abiding and remaining? And what helps me to abide and remain in the vine? And, and, uh, but my life is about maturing and nurturing this relationship with Jesus as my vine. But do you understand? It's a life of total dependence on Him. Apart from me, you can do nothing, said Jesus. Now the reason you're dependent and not independent is because you know who you are. You and I know are to know that we have holes in our soul. We have ugly parts of us. We have depraved parts of us on the inside that are frightening. In fact, that we're embarrassed about. And so it causes us to depend on the vine, the Savior Jesus, because I know how much I need Him. In other words, it's not pretending. I'm not, 
Christianity is not about being nice and sweet and religious and stuffing and pretending and denying. Because people who stuff and pretend and are nice and denying, there's no compassion that flows out of them. But he's talking about a people that are leaning in dependence on the vine. Listen to this quote. I don't know who said it. Perfection is not elimination of imperfection, but the ability to incorporate imperfection. One more time. Perfection is not elimination of imperfection, but the ability to incorporate imperfection. In other words, we face our limitations on the inside, our sins, our failures. Uh, again, the, the parts of ourselves, we're ashamed of what we've done, we're embarrassed. We recognize our own poverty. And we lean on Jesus. We're, we're supernaturally living in the vine because we have nowhere else to go. But I take ownership of the, that st the stupid part of myself, my own darkness that makes me want to vomit and cry. And, you know, the part of me is a hypocrite. And, and, but it, it, but it's, the other side, it's the only way I come to compassion is in that place where I'm so depending on the vine and I know who I am or else you know something? There's no compassion that flows out of us. There's no love that flows out of us. And, and uh, when you stand apart and say, oh, those sinners, those screwed up, those alcoholics, those dope addicts, you know, and look at them. You know, when you're apart, those hypocrites, when you stand apart like that, there's no love. There's no love that comes out of you. See what the badge is that we all wear? I'm a sinner, just like you. I'm one with the rest of you, the rest of humanity. That's the bad. That's number two. That's B, living supernatural in the vine. And so I don't walk around saying, oh, you know, we're, judge we're so judgmental. We're so we categorize people. Ah, oh, he's, he's fat. He's skinny. He's Republican. She's a de Democrat. Oh, yeah. She lives in Mississippi. Oh, she lives in Connecticut. Oh, you know, they're Catholic. Ah, oh, they're Muslim. Ah, oh, they're Pentecostal. Ah, oh, they're an introvert. And we murder people all the time with our, our words. And, and we stand apart. Ah, oh, they're in prison. Ah, oh, they're in debt. Ah, oh, they're on welfare. Kind of like we're a step above it. We're worthy. They're not. Do you understand? They don't do it our way. So we write them off. That's not abiding in the vine. It's death. It's self. It's flesh. Kills oneness. One fellow wrote beautifully. He says, my, my pilgrim's progress has been to climb down 10,000 ladders into the truth. Now I can reach out my hand of friendship from the little clod of earth that I am. In other words, I had to climb down 10,000 ladders of being uppity, better, superior to everybody else. Now that I finally got to the truth of who I am, now I can actually, from where I stand, reach out a hand of friendship to somebody else and not act like I'm superior. You see, it's not that I'm, some of us are inferior, some of us are superior, but no, we live in His righteousness. I stand before God, not less than you or more than you. We all stand on equal ground if we've come to Jesus in His righteousness alone. Nothing else. Tremendous, the gospel. Ah, okay, one more, go down. Got carried away there. Heat and all. Verse 26. Go to verse 26. 
Verse 26 is one of the most beautiful verses in all the New Testament. And I'm simply calling it living supernaturally in the Father's love for Jesus. Now you've got to read this verse very carefully or you miss it. This is final verse prayer. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known. In other words, Jesus is going to continue to make the Father known to us. In order that the love you have for me may be in them. Catch that? He prays that the love the Father has for the Son may be in them. Think of the Father loving the Son, Jesus. The Father in heaven. The Father loves Jesus with a perfect, holy, pure, passionate, fire-hydrant intensity of love, inexhaustible for the Son. His prayer is that the Father's love for the Son might be in you towards Jesus. Think of your love for Jesus. Up today, down tomorrow, inadequate. You forget about him for two days at a time. Our love for Jesus is so up and down, so inadequate. Knows it takes the power of heaven to love Jesus. Hear that. It takes the power of the Father's love for Jesus to love Jesus. And unless you love Jesus with that kind of love, you don't love people. You quit on them. You throw them out. Why well, love the church? Why well, love the church? Because he loves the church. It's his bride. You can't separate the two. They're so wrapped up one in each other. He's passionate to bring a bride before him, holy and blameless. And he's praying for that at the right hand of the Father even now. And so he prays that we might love Jesus with the love of the Father that the Father has for the Son. Friends, that is powerful. You pray that prayer for yourself. Father, help me love Jesus with the love that you have for Jesus. Ah, you pray that every day for a month. You watch. You'll say to yourself, oh my goodness. You'll be on the beach tomorrow and say, where'd that love come for Jesus? I just, I love you. You don't even know where it came from because it came from heaven. And it's got to be prayed into you. You see, unless, you, unless we have that verse 26, the love you have for me may be in them. I love that verse. I hope you love that verse. Because you see, you can't work up loving Jesus, but you can pray, God, give me, Father, the love you have for Jesus. Give it to me, Lord, that I might love him purely with the power from heaven. You need power from heaven to love Jesus. Be free, my friends. We're going to pray it into each other. And, say, That's super. and then, then you know what? Then you want to get the skills and knowledge to love those people. Because you got the power of the vine and the power of the Father's love flowing through you. Ugh. I can't wait to get to heaven. You know why? Because I'll love him perfectly with the very power of the Father in me. I long for that day to see him face to face. No more ups and downs and crankiness on my part. But if you're, I'm saying, I know we need to blow the Spirit. I want to close with this. We, listen, we can't be naive. This will never happen without the power of God. It will never happen without mature men and women in our midst growing us up, helping us, getting along, saying, come on, you can do it, battling for the unity of the body, fighting against hell itself that seeks to cut people off and isolate them and discourage them and fill them with unbelief and cause them to become murderers with their words, that we fight and help mature people up. All right, I want the worship team to come forward, and I want to ask you to do three things in closing. First is repent. I want to invite us all to repent. I'm talking about repenting from judgmentalism, repenting of bitterness, repenting of independence, our independent spirit, 
repenting of our resentments, resentment of our, I mean, repenting of our worldliness that keeps us from living out this vision of Jesus. We've got to turn, friends, from that and turn to Jesus. The one is repent. Number two, I want you to ask and believe. God wants to do it. Ask Him for these two things. Lord, help me to be in You. Lord, grant me the power of the Father to love Jesus. Pray it. Ask the Lord for it. And then thirdly, receive it because He wants to give it to you. Thank you, Lord. Let's all stand. All right. This song we're going to sing is that weight of glory song we sang at the offering. I want to ask you to make it your prayer to the Father. Okay? Make this your heart cry to God now. Your repentance. Then repent and ask the Lord for these things we've just spoken about. And then receive them because... Believe me, Jesus wants to give them to you. He prays, he's praying it for you. And he means it. So Father, we pray even now as we sing, we worship. Some of us, Lord, may need to listen to you right now. But I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you drive back the forces of hell that bring discouragement and despair and depression over these fine men and women. And I ask you, Lord, to set us free in this room. I break the power of despair and lies and, and how the evil one would seek to cut us off from other fellowships, cut anybody off here from their life in you. And Lord, fill us with glory. The very power, G Father, you have for Jesus, grant to us that we might love Jesus with the power of you, Father, in us. Release that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's sing this together. You may just want to listen or join in the song. You are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. Not just salt of your neighborhood or salt of your family. God says you're the salt of the entire earth. The church, the body of Christ, is that flavors and seasons and even brings conviction, exposes the world around us. There, there is only the salt of the earth, which is, which is the, the church, the body of Christ. And then the light of the world, our job is to simply abide in Him. His job is to make us lights. But we are the light and the salt of the world and, and the earth. And he makes these huge statements to these 11 guys who are all ordinary. And Listen, I, I hope you just caught a little glimpse today of, of that revelation of the heart of Jesus for your life and your own destiny and wrapped up in the people of God and the warfare that goes on over the body of Christ, over the church. So, um, can we just pray? Can we just kind of bow our heads for a moment? Let's wait on the Lord for just a moment. I want to just pray and relational conflict with another individual or group of people. And as we close the service out, to your left, you need to come forward for prayer. And that's what we're about. We're to serve each other and pray for each other. You need the power of God. You need skill. You need life in you to enable you to love well, to walk this out. You need wisdom and prudence. And we want to pray for you. So I want to encourage you to come, over to your, come up here to your left afterwards. Those of you just, you're in battle relationally or you're in despair or in depression or you just can't see. You come. We want to lay hands on you. And we're, we're, listen, we're, we're in this thing together as a, as a family. But God wants to set you free.
But Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus right now, God, that you would mature us in our oneness.